Welcome to Devalue with Mike and Caroline, the place where we talk about art and money and how creative people are navigating the ever-changing landscape of trying to make a living for their work. We're going to be interviewing all types of creative people, and we'll be talking about all types of issues that creative people face. We hope you'll get something out of it. We're excited to welcome you to Devalued. Hey, Mike. Hey, Caroline. Who are we talking to today? We are talking to Suzanne Gianni, legendary, visionary, pioneering electronic music artist and classical wonder kind. <laughs> <laughs> She was one of the most lovely people we've ever spoken with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my energy has shifted since the beginning of our conversation. We spoke to her about everything from, you know, how to how to make your career on your own terms to of how to bang on the door to sell your wares and how to um, just not give in and not give up and to stay true to yourself as a person. It was beautiful. Yeah, I thought so too. And how um, being a niche artist is a is a strength yeah it was a really awesome conversation so hope here, you enjoy it here it is well we usually just start out asking what you think about the relationship between art and money and if you think they go together well i think they can go together very well when i was starting out um i i didn't want to put the pressure of making money on my art, my pure art. So I decided to make a living in a musical neighboring area. So instead of, uh, you know, I would do my, my album recordings on the weekend and during the week I would make money in music, specifically doing commercials. So, um, before I did commercials for money, I explored doing something unassociated with music. You know, there, there are stories of like Philip Glass driving a taxi cab. Yeah. Yeah. Another, and I realized that anything you do takes so much of you that if you can do it in a related field and it can benefit fit you, you know, in ancillary ways, uh, that it's, it's a much better fit. So instead of making furniture, I decided to <laughs> do sound design, you know, in, in commercials. So yeah, I think they both can go together. And, and I think as, uh, as my career went on, I, you know, the business side of music is clearly absolutely essential to succeeding as an artist, I mean, you really have to, you really have to get your hands dirty, you know, in the business side. Mm. One, I think you're the only person that we've spoken with that went to, that went to school for music, that studied music. Um, when you were at school, I think you went to Berkeley, right, for music? I went to um, the University of California at Berkeley. So it's a different Berkeley. Oh, right, right, right. That's yeah, that was for graduate school. Undergrad, I was I was in Boston area. I went to a girls' college called Wellesley. And I I would have gone to Berkeley College of Music, but I didn't know about it. I wanted to learn about jazz and I just didn't know where it was. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, when you were in school studying music, was there 
a path to making a living at it? Or was it just some kind of crazy thing to do back then? As a woman in music in those days, it was assumed that you were going to be a teacher. And I, you know, I love teaching and I have nothing against teaching, but that wasn't where I, you know, that wasn't my vision of, I was a composer. I wanted to compose. I wanted to write my music and make my career that way. So I never gave up that vision. Uh, and I think that, you know, for, for women in those days, um, composing was not a fruitful area. Nobody wanted women composers. The film industry didn't want them. You know, it's it's an old story, but... I think that's why electronic music was so uh, just really uh, I gravitated towards it because it gave me a new place to play where I could have control and make the rules myself, you know? Uh, So that's, and and when you see that film, Sisters with Transistors, you'll see that a lot of the women were motivated by that very concept of having independence because the music industry, the music business wasn't set up for them. I think it's changed somewhat. You know, you can find your way now. And what was the reaction at the time when you were um, kind of exploring this field of electronic music because I listened, one of the albums that I love by you is the concerts that you gave in 1975. What what was the reaction to those concerts? I mean, as a listener now, I love it because I can, you know, listen to them while, while I make breakfast or something like that. But what was, I wonder like how far out people thought you were back then. Well, the funny thing is that I was very uh, musically lonely in those days because nobody understood what was going on. They'd see this machine that for me was my old friend (laughs) and very familiar to me, you know, and they'd look at it and they couldn't even see it, you know, because they didn't know what it was and they didn't know where the sound was coming from or whether, you know, was there a record, you know, was there a recording in there? What was going on? And then it was spatial music. So the music was moving around the room and people were just, um, lost. So I consider myself unbelievably lucky to have lived long enough to come back to that world of analog modular and play for audiences that have an ear for it. They can hear it. They understand it. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be happier. Did you see that coming at all? I mean, could you imagine when you were making the music originally that years later, a whole new audience would be able to discover and appreciate you? Well, I honestly thought that it was going to happen in a year or two. <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> Took a little longer than expected. <laughs> That's awesome. Instead of 40, 40 years. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really interesting because one of the, like, I, I guess iconic clips of you is on the David Letterman show. And, you know, you, you, you were with the, 
you're on the show with all your gear and you're he's almost like he doesn't even know what to do with it because he's like what is this stuff is this just a gimmick is it goofy but as a listener now all of the gear that you use is like is some of the best some of the most beautiful music ever made it comes out of those that gear these, these machines and it's so transportive and it's so ethereal and and you can just get lost in it but at the time it was like oh what is this goofy stuff right <laughs> and you know on that show um you know my progression musically i mean i started classically then i went into the bukla pure bukla for about 10 years and then by the time i did the david letterman show as you can see i didn't bring the bukla that was a prophet five and a collection of you know independent modules that i called the voice box so i could control my sound with my voice yeah and then i had a uh, a roland mc8 or four i can't remember uh that had recorded some of the uh songs from my first album seven waves and i went on the letterman show uh to be the whiz kid you know they wanted me <laughs> to be the whiz kid uh but i wanted them i wanted him to play my music so we made a deal that i would do that interview with him and then at the end they would let me play one of my songs and of course that never happened uh because they cut to commercial mm. But uh, yeah, that was that was the deal that never got made. But yeah, I think I got the I think I got the higher end of the deal, don't you think? I mean, there are people that get upset that he's so like rude and all that, but <laughs> that's kind of his bit, I yeah. guess. <laughs> but in the end, he just looks a little stupid. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned feeling a little um, isolated in your journey through music and I think a lot of creatives are feeling that way now especially with um, the struggles the financial struggles that a lot of people are facing and that can seem it can seem hard to uh, imagine ways to make money with your art without sacrificing what makes you happy when you're making it um, so you said that you started off with jingles and kind of commercial stuff that makes a lot of sense and I was curious, I know you kind of did, um, is it called like an audio logo? Sort of like a mm -hmm. sound that's associated with a brand. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that was established and you, uh, people were commissioning folks to make those things? Or is that something that you kind of saw as a niche thing that you could offer and went out and gave, you know, pitched to companies that they could use it? It's funny because I never, uh, you know, thought of logos as a particular niche. But when you look back, you realize I did do a lot of them. And I think that electronics was perfectly suited to that because it could make a really cut through sound that was designed, especially, you know, I was so in love with the, um, the, po the poetic nature of the sound, how it could carry a subliminal message, a message beyond the notes. And in those days, products were just starting to use technology. So that, you know, they had a chip in a dishwasher washer, a chip in an elevator, and this kind of Atari started. 
And all of this kind of fascination with the burgeoning, you know, birthing area of technology made it an, a natural for me because I was the only game in town, really, for high-tech sound design for a while there. Yeah, I mean, nobody knew how, you know, I had the tool. I had the bukla. It was extremely, you know, it's so well-designed. I called Don Bukla the Leonardo da Vinci of analog music modular instrument design. We didn't use the word synthesizer back then. <laughs> Not that it didn't exist. It existed, but it connoted something negative. You know, synthesis, synthetic, copying a sound, making a sound that sounded like something else, like a flute or a string. My cat is on. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's contributing. She's yes. the other guest. <laughs> I, I don't know. She's really having dreams. She's like going through her. <laughs> Should I, if it gets too loud, let me know and I'll. <laughs> That's Mouse. Mouse the cat. That's um, cute. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm sorry. Where were we? Well, I, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know we're talking about money and how difficult it is. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm with you on that. Because uh, there are so many pathways through music, not just the obvious ones. And we all know what a touch, you know, I hear that the train in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Yeah. But, um, you know, we all know what a hit song is. And we think, oh, a hit song, that's what we need. But, you know, it's almost religious. That yeah. sound is beautiful. <laughs> Uh, I love trains. Um, yeah, same. We just yeah. kind of let yeah. them pass. <laughs> I guess that's why so many country songs are written here. <laughs> okay. You know, speaking of that and country songs, I was recently playing in Dublin, mm. and uh, they said that um, Garth Brooks had been there this year. Mm hmm. And he played for 500,000 people. Can you imagine? I can't name a single Garth Brooks song. Yeah, I know. I just, I thought, mm, I know he was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did five concerts with a total of 500,000 people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so this, this is part of my point, is that the music business appears monolithic, that it has one structure you know, the hit song at the top and the pop song. But in fact, it's a huge playing field. And you can make a wonderful living in something that you might not even see right now. You know, if you just do what you love and what your skill set is and, you know, build up your momentum doing, you know, don't imitate, you know, Imitating is like a false illusion. You know, you think you're going to make a hit song because it sounds like a hit song. And so you you do that. Uh, it doesn't come from imitation. It comes from originality. The strength of music is a voice. It's your voice. I know I'm preaching now, but, you know, I have 
figured out, for me anyway, some of these things that, you know, you there's space for you to be yourself. There's plenty of space out there. And your strongest communication is when you are yourself, you know, when you are doing what you want. So um, in the meantime, yeah, you might have to uh, do some screen scoring, you know, to make money or sell a song for this or that. Uh, lots of income streams. And that's what we have to learn, you know, as they say, where's the money? Where's the money? Somebody told me in the beginning, never give up your publishing. I didn't even know what publishing was. <laughs> I still don't, you know. <laughs> I mean, publishing is, <laughs> publishing is the most obscure part of the business, but the, the healthiest, one of the best. And so I just tell kids, uh, you know, never give up your publishing. It seems so abstract. They don't even know what it is. It's like, well, I can give it away. I don't even know what it is. Here, take it. And, uh, you know, it's your, it is your lifelong income possibility. And you don't know what the value of something is during your whole life. You don't know if it's going to come back. I mean, you talked about my concert from 1975. That came out, you know, 40 years later. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's good advice, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and I read this interview with you where, in especially in the early days of, of your career, um, when you didn't really know a path forward, you started just knocking on doors of ad agencies and, and other commercial entities. And you just kept kept pounding the pavement and trying to get yourself out there. And eventually, uh, a door opened for you and, and you were able to kind of move in. Um, where did you get that confidence from and how did you know that that was like the right thing to do? I was hungry. I think, you know, real hunger, you know, you when you really need money. <laughs> it, <laughs> That's it our entire money. audience. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there were times when I stopped short. I mean, I love the examples in my life where I pushed through and I never gave up and I got through the door and it was amazing. But I also have an example um, where I, I, I stopped short. I was looking for a record deal, I remember, for my first record and I couldn't get one in the States. So then I went to Europe and I, I was making the rounds of the labels and I had Polygram on the hook. And they had offices in like five countries. And they, I had visited four of them. And they still hadn't said, you know, yes, yes. They said, no, you have to go to the fifth country. And I said, oh, my God, no, I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. I'm just not going there. <laughs> and I didn't do it. I ended up getting a deal in Japan. That was another trip. But years later, I found out that the last polygram appointment would have been this wonderful guy who later became an artist on my record label. Wow. Small world, you know. I gave up 
And would my life have been different? I don't know. But, you know, here's the other side. Um, I didn't sign a traditional record deal. So I know the big labels uh, want you to, you know, give over your, your master rights. And I didn't instinctively, you know, I was like a, a mother with a child. <laughs> and I said, I'm not giving this child up for adoption. It's like, it's mine. So I licensed my first master and my second master. I licensed to RCA, to Atlantic, to JVC. I mean, labels that, I mean, I was a tiny commodity for sure, but I really stuck to my guns. And those are the albums that I still own today. I did make a mistake in album three. So three through eight, I don't own. Mm. And that's because a friend, you have to be careful of friends. Yeah. Because they mean well. The business is that contract that you sign. Right. Not what I say. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, really encouraging to know that you have this creatively fulfilling and successful life without having given up too much of, uh, you know, your, your soul. Your soul. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a long journey. That's the other thing. I mean, when you're young, you think that if you don't make it by 40, you know, you're finished. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> we, we put all these horrible, you know, deadlines on our, you know, our creativity. And it's like, no, you know, it's a whole life. Right. You have a whole life. Yeah. Well, how did you find it within yourself to believe that the things that you were doing were worth doing, that were worthwhile? I mean, because we mentioned the 1975 concert. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to that. And mm -hmm. you mentioned that you were this lonely artist on the, on this island. Um, how did you? How did you not? Um, how did you find that belief in yourself that to keep going, even even? When things were lonely. Well, you know, it's funny that that release was done by Finders Keepers. Yeah. And I, I would never have released it myself. Right. Because I was busy making high level, high tech studio albums. That album was recorded, you know, with one mic in a room, you know, with trucks going by. And <laughs> it was, you know, yeah. and here I spent my life, you know, recording, you know, on high you know the, the highest technology um and very expensive uh recording in new york so but how did i keep going um how um it's funny because my original uh vision as i said i saw myself as a composer and that was the big umbrella that everything came under so I started out in the classical world as a pianist. Then I met Don Buchla, went to work for him, and got a Buchla. And I spent 10 years. Now, th those 10 years in 
the electronic, um, that new electronic area uh, was was wonderful and disappointing. It was wonderful in that, you know, when I went to LA, all the film scoring composers wanted to learn and I gave lessons to all, you know, the top composers and they gave me lessons in scoring. Mm. So I arrived in New York. I arrived in New York to do that Buchla concert, the one you like. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, no, 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 no. No, the one I did, the first one I did in New York was at an art gallery and that one's coming out soon. Oh, cool. There's That's awesome. Yeah, there's a new analog Buchla concert. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That one was recorded on a cassette. You know, it's like, it's amazing that we have any documents at all because, you know, when you play in quad, we couldn't record that. My live performances just weren't recorded. Uh, the one from 75 was, one of them was recorded at a radio station and stereo, so that's good. But we never did um, quad recordings. Uh, so now I have the dilemma. I do do quad recordings, but releasing them on vinyl is very tricky. Mm. So I don't put out a lot. I don't have a lot of releases. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that you mentioned originality and that striving to be an original rather than being derivative is is the goal of the artist. And if you and if you feel um, original, it's easier to keep going and it's easier to kind of weather the the trends and 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 have a career that's of your own making on your own terms. Um, and I think that's really what you've managed to do because because my story with you is that I first heard your music on that album, Synergy, like mm -hmm. two years ago. And then from that, through Spotify, I was able to hear, you know, all the rest of the stuff that you have, including all your classical work, which I love. Like, um, the velocity of love is so beautiful. Um, and so this idea of being original um, as, a, as a gateway to having a career like what are what is what are your what is your advice on that front? Like how do you determine that you were original and then um, you had something to say? That's a good way to put it: is having something to say, right? Okay, so you have something to say, and then I think one of the um, formulas that you can count on is that you have to you are the only one who can really approve it. So it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. If you don't, you know, sometimes people will send me their tapes, their demos or whatever, and they'll want to know if I like it. <laughs> and my question is, <laughs> it's not important if I like it. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah, the question is, do you like it? Mm. And in your soul of souls, in your intuitive brain, you know whether you're making excuses for it or whether, you know, you're not going to go out there and say, oh, well, I really think you know, the, the drums need to be fixed, but let's see if they like it. And so if they say they like it, is that good enough? No. 
you know, you have to please yourself because, you know, I know we do a lot of recording now very quickly. I mean, when I started, we had to go to a big studio and it was very expensive and you didn't do that much. Now you can do it, you know, every night in your living room. So you, you might not see that what you're creating uh, has longevity. It's, it's fixed. It's a document and you're going to live with it and it's going to be there. So before, you know, before you put something out in the world, uh, make yourself happy because otherwise every time you hear it, you're going to say, oh, gosh, I wish I'd, mm, I don't mm. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> so you want to you be happy when you hear something coming back at you. Mm. It's like, yeah. That seems like a good way to make any life decision, um, to ask yourself if you really feel good about it. And then knowing that in the future, you can know in that moment that you really wanted that. Yes. Even though it can change, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, yeah. And I mean, I noticed that because I'm old and sometimes I'll, <laughs> I'll listen to some of my, I'll listen to some of my, you know, piano music. And I'll think, you know, what was I thinking? I mean, <laughs> I mean, a lot. And then another time I'll listen to it and I love it, mm. you know, because listening is a living, a living thing, right? There's no, no there, there. Yeah. Well, how does that relationship work with the improv improvisational? I always struggle with that word. <laughs> improvisational work that you do versus the classical work that you do that's 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 based on compositions making yourself happy with improv might seem a little more challenging right i mean you have to um especially if you're going to listen to it back as a document on a record or something uh, i would imagine that you have far less control given the nature of improv right um you know, it's funny because when we we were talking earlier about jazz and how I couldn't find jazz when I was young, I wanted jazz. And I think I just found jazz. Now, you know, I go to Berkeley College of Music, but I just did a concert in Amsterdam with a big jazz orchestra. Wow. And it's going to be coming out soon. Wow. And it is, for me, you know, just amazing because uh, it is, you know, it's just overpowering. I mean, I do a lot of solo performing. And in this project, I was one of the players. I wasn't the whole thing. You know, yes, I was the undercurrent of the music, but it was just such a privilege to play with these brilliant musicians. Um, the Synergy album that you like, that was improvised. Yeah, right, right. right. Yeah, and I, I love improvising now. Um, and the Bukla, you know, has given me the tools to improvise. It's a new language. I don't improvise with the jazz guys. I'm not Bill Evans. You know, I never <laughs> will be. Uh I missed that boat. You know, if I had found jazz when I was 18, you know, maybe I would have gone that way. 
but now I do what I consider jazz with the bukla. So there are new techniques. Uh, you know, if you analyze uh, something, you can derive, you know, sets of descriptive rules that produce that. You know, that's why in artificial intelligence now, they think they can make hit songs and everything else because they've, you know, uh, distilled the operative, you know, things going on. But um, there are techniques in, in everything. But, you know, for me, it's a process of discovering them, not applying them particularly, not just, you know, finding them over here and then bringing them. But within the working process, when you're making the music and you're, you know, in that creative journey, you find things that become yours. You know, your techniques, I like this, I do this, I like, oh, look what I, wow, that's cool, you know. And, and so you find your own language through accident, really, improvising, you know, exploring, playing, play, playing. Playing is playing. <laughs> <laughs> and some people would consider being um, super niche as sort of a hurdle um, to get exposure, but it seems like you've used it as your greatest strength. It's funny because just last night, Somebody sent me a little uh, URL for the Al Yankovic, the Weird Al <laughs> film. <laughs> he's, he's just a perfect example, but the film <laughs> overdramatizes that whole thing. Naturally. You know? yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, so we have, we have, and I've heard so many stories of, you know, um, I won't use names but artists who were given opportunities, you know, with a big uh, deal and they tried to make something that they thought they should make. And she said to me, you know, it failed. My project failed, but I wish it had failed on my terms. When you fail doing something outside of yourself or that you think you should be doing or that you're trying to be, you'd be much happier <laughs> failing on your own terms. Yeah. You'd be even happier succeeding on your own terms. Qu'est-ce que c'est? What's that? <laughs> That's a fire truck. Oh. So oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it can be hard to... Um get your parents on board with that kind of <laughs> I've had that struggle anyway of uh, you know trying to express that I need to do this my way I need to live my way I need to find my career my way so I can always know that I did it the way that I needed to try and uh, that can that can be hard to explain to people Are you who aren't in a home? creative field. I'm not, uh, but I'm very close with my family. I think we've finally gotten to a point now uh, after several years of continued pursuit. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it, um, 
I guess that's why so many creatives can bond quickly because we understand that particular struggle. Yeah, like you're taking a risk uh, just by living, trying to live an artistic life. And I, w- I mean, I, the little that I know about you is that you grew up with a big family, and I wondered what did your parents think about you going into like this weird, <laughs> <laughs> this weird electronic universe. Well, you know, I think I was lucky in that I had a big family because I could hide out. <laughs> they they really half the time didn't even know my name. <laughs> and so I had a lot of freedom. I think that, you know, the helicopter parenting that has been around the over, you know, caretaking parenting is a bit stifling. I mean, you really do need your freedom you need freedom to create and you have to create that freedom first. How do you do it? Um, you know, you can hide someplace where nobody knows where you are and, and do what you're doing. Keep it secret. Um, I, I don't know, but parents mean well, but you're not here, you know, Ultimately, they want you to be happy, but they don't think that you know enough to create your own happiness. And that the fact is, is that by the time you're seven, you know, that's considered, uh, you know, independent age. You can get up, you can feed yourself, you know, you can do everything. The rest of it is you don't need, you know, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so you you know you really have to be strong, and uh, I I never you know for me I was also lucky because I was a girl, and my father was Italian, and I grew up in a time where women weren't supposed to have careers. They were supposed to get married, and have kids. And uh, nothing was expected of me. Nothing was expected of me or my sisters. And my first sister is a lifelong artist, painter, brilliant. Second one was a lawyer, an attorney, the first female partner in her law firm. Wow. Then came me. Then came my next sister, was an, en- was an architect. And the next one was an engineer. Wow. So, you know, without hovering parents mm. who just said, I mean, I could tell you what my father said. You could use this in a lyric, I guess. <laughs> my father said. <laughs> you probably have great lyrics stored in your mind that you don't use. <laughs> yeah. He said, the, the only thing a woman n- needs to know is how to shave a man and polish his shoes. Oh, my gosh. Oh my God. <laughs> that goes that goes very well with that train sound we heard earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has turned into a songwriting session. Yeah. You're a country musician now. Welcome to Nashville. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's expected of me? <laughs> I can do whatever. I was free. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's good to, uh, I don't know, that's like a, always a fun thought experiment to me. It's like if we didn't have expectations or pressures. Um, some people argue that people just wouldn't do anything. 
You know, that's why we don't support socialism here very much, because there's this thought that people would just be lazy if they didn't have to do anything. But I don't agree with that at all. And I think artists are the prime example of that. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to make things, but you do. Right. Yeah. As my mother said, that just just sparked this thought. She would say to me, the world doesn't need another album. You know, she took the pressure off of me. It's like, yeah, you don't have to make, nobody's saying you have to do this. Uh, And I don't think that humans are intrinsically lazy. I think that, I don't know where that idea comes from. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, do you want your grapes peeled? And you want to like (laughs) (laughs) I just don't think that's how it works. But, you know, there's no accounting for people's different worldviews. And some of them are, you know, come from a feeling of... um, you know, that somebody's laziness is taking something from you. If you're lazy, then I'm supporting you. And that formula for judging, you know, it just is out of proportion, really. I mean, there might be a couple of lazy people around, but that's not let there be lazy people. Let there be a couple of lazy people in every hundred <laughs> people. <laughs> and, and in a way, the, the fact that the world is going so fast and everything seems to be accelerated and we're all at hyperspeed and attached to our phones 24-7, to me, the, the fact that the music that you're making and that you've made for so long is back in fashion in a lot of ways is seems necessary because it it's a bomb it's it's a it's a, it's a, to me like when i put on your records it's like a source of comfort because it slows down the world and it helps mm. with you know getting into a more reflective meditative mindset and i don't know if that's what you intended but i think that's how a lot of people use it that is what i intended so my intention was to make a safe space and part of realizing that intention had to do with you know, having musical integrity, right? Because it had to be safe for me too. So I was going to be in that space and I wanted it to be perfect for me, you know? Mm. And and there were other undercurrents in that, you know, because early electronics, what we discovered was the beauty of the machine. Now everybody's familiar with the machine. But in those days, um, you know, the fact that something could produce a totally reliable rhythm at a slow tempo was a revelation because we knew how to keep a tempo, you know, kind of fast with drums, but nobody could keep a steady tempo really, really slowly. So the machine had this subliminal power to give us, you know, a a chance to relax because we didn't have to worry. It was subliminal. The next beat was coming, like the ocean. 
you know, the ocean, the waves are going to keep coming. You don't have to worry. It's, it's like ongoing. Right. Even though it's not regular, the ocean's not like, you know, cookie cutter. But Has your relationship to what you make with, especially with the improv, um, has it changed? Because as a listener, when I listen to um, Synergy, it's very different than the 1975 performance, for, exa for example. I feel like Synergy, it's almost more, um, it's, it's almost more confident or assured of itself. There's there's more of a, um, a sense of uh, a patience, maybe. And I don't know if that's me projecting, but I... I don't know if there's, you know, spending a life in music, I don't know if you get more confident impro improvising. You know, the challenges of improvising, improvising in 1975 and 74 were very different from the ones we have now. So uh, the machines back then, the 200, the Buchla, was 100% analog. And in order to perform, you know, you had a lot of uh, unpredictability in the process. You know, you had to go from one situation to another situation. It was like a choreography of how do you get there, you know. And with Synergy, it was a different approach. Uh, it was more uh, pure sequencer driven uh, because we had our clocks locked. Mm. That was the basis for our connection was that integration of the tempo, right? So we could both be playing uh, with our, you know, with the, the predictability of that tempo. It was a different tempo. It was a whole different approach. All my, my music now is a different approach for better or for worse. Um, it's dependent on the tools, what you have to work with, you know, the design of the instrument. So my 200E has a memory. It has a digital component. The 200 really didn't. Yeah. And that digital, yeah. I pick, I pick up on that, I think, but I think that's partly why I love the 1975 one so much is, is because there, there's, it feels alive. It feels like uncontrollable in a way, where it, it, it you know, it's like it takes my mind into um, new places every time I listen to it. Whereas if I listen to Sunergy, um, I kind of, I'm in the mood. Do you know what I mean? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So. Yes, I, I do know what you mean, <laughs> and you know, uh, I this project that I just did in Amsterdam, uh, I become aware, you know, I'm a proponent of, I, I say it's collaborative. I say that electronic music is a collaboration between the engineer and the performer. So you, the engineer gives you the tools, you give the engineer feedback about what you need to be able to do, right? And then you live in a world of compromise. Because, and, and part of working in these instruments is really to explore the boundaries as much as anything.
you know, um, I just gave a class at Berkeley College of Music. And, you know, when you first walk up to one of these instruments, it's like, it's so undefined. You know, all these modules just, you know, independently sitting there. And where do you start? And, and so, you know, the start is the patch. You know, how are they going to talk to each other? And then you, the next step is to um, live with the patch. You know, be be with the patch and <laughs> <laughs> and explore. You know, it's a relationship. It takes time. You know, it takes timeless time. There's something beautiful in the creative world when you just stop the clock. A lot of time we're working for deadlines or we have in, that's always good too. You know, it gives you a, a deadline and you, you rise to the occasion. But there's another kind of creativity, which is the timeless creativity that um, we get more when we're young, you know, when we become super professional and we get good at it. You know, we tend to repeat ourselves a little bit and do what we know how to do. But that exploratory time, you know, when I did my albums, I stopped time, my first album, Seven Waves and the Velocity of Love. So I made a pact with myself in the studio because I didn't want the stress. I didn't want stress in the music. So I told myself, there is nothing to do and everything will get done. You have an intuition. I mean, it's your creative intuition, but it's also the intuition that protects you and takes care of you and that honestly you can count on it in so many ways if you just, you know, let things happen. I'm not that good at it all the time in daily life. You know, but I do notice if I, if I choose uh, to trust my instincts, that stuff just gets done. Your music yeah. lessons are also great life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. It's I been... really look forward to watching the new film. Yeah, and hearing the jazz album, it sounds mm -hmm. amazing. I can't wait to hear that. That's what I was just watching when when you tuned in. I had this, I don't know if you heard any of it, but <laughs> I, you know, it, I was just checking it out cuz they're they uh yeah, they're going to they're going to put it out. It's going to be great. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you thank so you, much, Dr. Suzanne. Thank you. Love to speak with you. you too. Yeah, thank same. you, Carol. Okay. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Devalued. For more information about our podcast, please visit devalued.show.